0: This morning, we're going to take a brief pause in our study on 1 Peter as we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. This morning, we are going to open the book of Isaiah to hear God's promise of a Savior for us. In March of 2023, the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention released a study entitled Health Risks of Social Isolation and Loneliness. Their conclusion was that loneliness significantly increased risks of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, addiction, suicide, dementia, and early death. Then in May, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy released an advisory that was entitled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Our government is telling us that loneliness is now an epidemic. Loneliness is something that we all feel at some times throughout our lives. In a culture that is highly connected through social media, we still feel isolated and alone now more than ever. We've all been in restaurants and we've seen families or friends sitting together around a table but ignoring each other because they're on their phones. This explains the title of a book by Sherry Turkle, Alone Together why we expect more from technology and less from each other. It is truly a sad commentary when we define our friends by the number of followers that we have on social media and on the depth of the relationship that we have with the people who are right in front of us. Around the holidays, many of us will struggle with loneliness in more pronounced ways because we've lost loved ones or we're unable to be with family. When people aren't there who have always been there, or when we're not where we've always been at Christmas time, we feel an especial weight of aloneness, grief, and longing for the way that things used to be. No matter where we spend Christmas or who we spend it with, Christmas carries with it a promise from God that we don't ever, ever have to be alone. Christmas tells us that God has come to our house, not just for Christmas dinner, but forever. The story of Christmas meets us in our loneliness and tells us that God sees us and he understands what we feel. It tells us that God doesn't just sympathize with us, but he's actually done something about it. Christmas tells us that God sent himself to come and to be with us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this awesome privilege that we have, this great opportunity, this great calling for us to gather together this morning, for us to open your word, your word of truth, your word of life. And we thank you that you are not only a promise making God, but you are a promise keeping God. And I ask, Father, that we would come to a greater understanding of that this morning. Father, we open this morning talking about loneliness, talking about the challenge of this holiday season. And Lord, I know that there are those who are hurting this morning. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be the salve upon the wound of their heart. I ask that you would make yourself so powerfully known, Jesus, that they would know that they are not alone that they are seen, that, they are under, that you understand them, that you are the God who not only knit them together in their mother's womb, but you are the God who knows everything about them. You are the God who counts the hairs upon their head and all the tears that have fallen from their eyes you have captured in a jar. You hear the cry of their heart, Father. You hear the cry of all of our hearts. And so I ask, Lord, that you would come You would rain peace down upon each and every heart this evening, this morning. And I ask, Father, that there would be great joy that would well up within us, for we truly have our Emmanuel, God, with us. And so, Lord, I ask that the words that I speak now would be words of life, be truth, Lord, because they are from your word and not my own. So, Holy Spirit, fill me afresh from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. Lord, I, any of us, Lord, without you are only babbling. And so we need you. We need you desperately. Anoint my words that they would be from you and words of life. We thank you and we praise you. You are our Emmanuel. Amen. The story of Christmas meets a very real need that we all have a need for relationship. In fact, the truth is that the entirety of Scripture is meant to show us that God has worked out His perfect plan for us from the very beginning to bring us back into relationship with Him. We were made in His image and in His likeness, and we were made for relationship. Relationship with our Creator and relationship with one another. But real relationship, real relationship requires a choice. Love requires a choice. And God gave Adam and Eve a choice. A choice to lovingly obey him and his commands or to seek his own way. They made the wrong choice. But this did not surprise God in any way. This was not beyond his sovereign understanding, and it was not beyond his perfect plan. Instead of immediately giving us the judgment that we deserve, God enacted a plan to reestablish a relationship of love and trust between us and him. In Genesis chapter 3, God says that the offspring of the woman will crush the evil serpent's head. God is saying that he will use a baby to start to undo the effect of sin's curse. The Old Testament gives us pointers along the way concerning the identity of this promised one. But it would take time for God's plan to unfold. Israel waited, and they waited, and they waited for their Messiah. And by the first century, many Jews were languishing under the belief that God was done with them. Israel at the time was in the hands of Rome. The spirit of prophecy had ceased, and yet, yet there were a few faithful Jews still waiting and watching for God to act. Luke tells us that Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel and that Anna was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Little, little did they know that God was about to visit them. God was on his way to meet his people. He was coming to meet people struggling to know if there even was a God and whether he cared about them. The Jews wanted to believe that God was going to send his Messiah. They didn't know that God was going to send himself. The beauty of Christmas is that God didn't send a proxy to do his work. He came himself. This, in fact, is the promise of Isaiah 7.14 let's read that together. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. As we always say, to understand scripture, we need to understand context. This is not going to be an exhaustive study on the book of Isaiah, but providing a little bit of background here for us to understand what is happening at this time This is the age of the Hebrew prophets, men who were used by God as spokesmen, mouthpieces to his chosen people, mostly to admonish and to correct them from their spiritual wanderings. The prophets went from one crisis to another. They lived on the heels of political intrigue. One of the greatest statesmen and spokesmen for God during that chaotic age was Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied from 739 to 681 BC to a nation that had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. Instead of serving him with humility and offering love to their neighbors, the nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifices in God's temple at Jerusalem, and they committed injustices throughout the nation. The people of Judah had turned their back on God and alienated themselves from him which is what created the need for Isaiah's pronouncement of judgment, declarations that were made in the hope that God's chosen people would return to him. Isaiah prophesied under the reign of four Judean kings, Uzziah, Gotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and likely he met his death under a fifth, the evil king Manasseh. The book of Isaiah provides us the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. It includes the full scope of his life, the announcement of his coming, his virgin birth, his proclamation of the good news, his sacrificial death, and his return and claim, return to claim his own. So as we approach the seventh chapter, Isaiah takes us from the long righteous reign of King Uzziah to his idolatrous grandson Ahaz, who sacrificed his own son to the pagan god of Moloch, The kingdom of David had sunk to the condition of faithless, godless pagans. On the political scene, it wasn't any better. Ahaz, Ahaz had found that his tiny kingdom was threatened with enemies from the north, especially the kingdoms of Israel and Aram or Syria. The Assyrian Empire had spread their reign of terror throughout most of the known world at that time, and they would plunder, and they would murder and burn wherever they went. The small kingdoms that lay along the shores of the Mediterranean were no match for these hordes of Assyrians, and so they decided the only way that they could protect themselves would be to band together into a single alliance. And so Egypt, Syria, and the northern kingdom of Israel formed an alliance, and they asked Judah to join with them. Ahaz, the king of Judah, refused. Instead, he hired the king of Assyria to protect them by plundering the temple in Jerusalem of all the silver and gold as payment for this protection. But things did not go particularly well. And so in 735 B.C., Israel and Syria staged an attack on Judah, and they were within three days of entering the city. This sent King Ahaz and his cabinet into a panic, which is where chapter 7 begins. Ahaz, Ahaz's heart, and this is what Isaiah tells us, Ahaz's heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. They were in a complete panic. So God sends Isaiah to meet Ahaz, who is, who is inspecting the water supply in preparation for the siege of his city. God's message to Ahaz and his royal cabinet is you have nothing to fear. God will preserve Judah. Take care. Be calm. Don't be faint-hearted. Trust In the Lord. That was the prevailing message that Isaiah was giving. Trust, trust in the Lord. Isaiah told them that if Judah believed God, they had a future. And if not, their doom was sealed. They will endure only if they would remain in faith. But Ahaz, as the king, stubbornly refused to believe Isaiah, or more importantly, he refused to believe God's promise. He clung to his unbelief. So God does something remarkable. He says to Ahaz, ask for a sign, anything Ahaz, and I will give it to you as evidence that the message that I give you is true. Ask for a miracle. It will be a pledge of divine certainty of what I say. It will prove that the word of God is true. But Ahaz refused to ask for a sign. Verse 12 tells us this, I will ask not, nor will I test the Lord. On first reading, you may actually think, well, good for Ahaz. He has read Deuteronomy 6.16 and he's not going to put God to the test. But please don't be fooled here. Ahaz's response is an evidence of his unbelief. The king actually knows that if he did choose a sign and the Lord demonstrated himself that he would be obliged to believe and to obey. Ahaz did not want to be accountable to God. The root of Ahaz's problem was that he was trusting in the arms of, armies of Assyria rather than trusting in the arms of the Lord. It is for this reason that the reply from the Lord serves As an indictment against Ahaz. And at the very same time, it is a promise of salvation to his people. And Isaiah knows that Ahaz's response is from unbelief. Because the next thing out of Isaiah's mouth is, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You can almost hear the frustration in Isaiah's voice. When God proposes a sign, it is not a test. It's an opportunity and it is a privilege to obey. And when we obey, that, that is when we get to experience God. Therefore, since Ahaz had refused to ask for a sign, God went ahead and he gave it to him anyway. And it was a powerful sign. We see this in the beginning of verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Let's be clear here. God turns to this unbelieving king and he says, since you don't want a sign, I'm going to give it to the house of David. Accordingly, he turns from Ahaz to the descendants of David. Seen in this light, the sign has nothing to do with Ahaz who has already demonstrated his unbelief we need to remember signs are given not to those who refuse to believe, but to those who are willing to believe. The sign is given to the people of Judah who want to believe God. The significance of the sign is seen that this was not in fact chosen by Ahaz, but was chosen by the Lord. Because Ahaz had chosen to refuse the sign, the Lord gave his own sign. And the purpose of a sign from God is to produce and to confirm belief. In total, there are between 200 and 400 prophecies or signs on the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. The actual number of prophecies is often debated, but the fact that Jesus fulfilled them all is not under debate. Genesis 12, as an example, tells us that this baby who will overcome sin, sin's curse, and redeem God's people, will be a descendant of Abraham. Genesis 49 says he will be from the tribe of Judah, while Deuteronomy 18 says he will speak as a prophet like Moses. 2 Samuel tells us that he will be from the royal line of King David, and Isaiah 61 says he will be full of the Spirit of the Lord. These are but just a few... The purpose of these signs was to confirm faith. Jesus says it this way in John 10, If I'm not doing the work of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What God gives to the house of David through Isaiah here is more than just a sign. It's a promise. We see this in the middle of verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This isn't just a sign. Church, this is a promise from God. And this promise has power. Think about this for a moment. This is some 700 years before the birth of Christ. Almost 3,000 years ago. And they were not the least bit confused about how biology works. They understood what we seem to have forgotten, that it takes the union of a man and a woman to conceive a child. So this pronouncement of a virgin conceiving was clearly understood by them, as it should clearly be understood by us, as something that is beyond extraordinary. It is beyond reason, Is beyond anything that we could ask, think, or even imagine. It was what we could, is beyond what we could think of as the natural course of human relationship. And so it was, in fact, supernatural. And it was what God was going to do. It was a promise. A virgin was going to conceive a child and bear a son. Ahaz had refused to ask a sign from God. He was afraid that God was going to, in fact, show himself as true and powerful and righteous. And that meant that Ahaz would need to obey God. At the moment that Isaiah gave this prophecy, I bet that Ahaz wished that he would have asked for a sign, anything, of God. Because the sign that God, in fact, gives here to the faithful remnant in Judah, it brings condemnation to the unrighteous. God was going to do something so extraordinary, so outrageous, so amazing, that none would be able to deny that God had done it. This is the power of a sign. This is the power of a promise. And it gives us the power of a name as we close out verse 14. And shall call his name Emmanuel. We don't think much about names today. We tend to choose a name by what we like or what we think sounds good. But names meant everything in Isaiah's day. In fact, Isaiah's name itself means salvation of the Lord. Now, I'm fairly doubtful that my parents thought much about the meaning of my name. They just liked the name Jeff, and they chose to spell it G-E-O-F-F because they wanted me to spend the entire rest of my life correcting everyone. (laughs) They didn't realize that my name is derived from the old German and means God's peace. This is unlike my wife Tracy, whose name is taken from the Irish, and it means warlike or warrior. They say opposites attract. (laughs) So we could be forgiven here for not really understanding the fullness of what Isaiah just said here. The name Emmanuel means something. It is meant not just to mean something, but to convey something something extraordinary, something amazing, something that is beyond comprehension. It is a mystery to be sought, a truth to be revealed. It is a hope to be born. What Isaiah gave us was a powerful name. And that is because Emmanuel means with us and El means God. God promised Emmanuel, God with us. This special child born of a virgin will be God who comes to dwell among his people. All of Christianity rests upon the foundation of this prophecy in Isaiah. God meant the sign to be earth-shaking. God meant it to be such a sign that it was actually fulfilled in history and that men and women would stand back and they would say, look what God had done. I saw God do it because it was only something that God could do. The sign of Emmanuel, God with us, is the coming of the child of a virgin. That sign was fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing in history approaches the mystery, beauty, and glory of the Lord coming to be with his people. God sent Gabriel to Mary and said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary, interestingly enough, got upset with the angel and said, how can this be since I am a virgin? There's no question about the word that she used. The word for virgin means a marriageable young woman who had preserved the purity of her body. She kept herself sexually pure. Listen, if the child were illegitimate, it could not be a sign. If the child were conceived naturally, it could not be a sign. The whole context of the Bible, from beginning to end, rules this out. The incarnation of God requires that he was born of a virgin, because then it would be of such incredible magnitude that God had come to be with his people and he would be able to deal with their sin. There is only one person in history who can be said was that God incarnate, God with his people, and that is Jesus Christ. The very presence of this child, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, cannot be applied anyone else Jesus the Christ is the son of the virgin and the mighty God the deity and pre-existence of Christ demanded this miraculous conception and virgin birth of Christ Emmanuel God with us this is the power of a sign the power of a promise and the power of a name and this This is what we celebrate this Christmas. I want to close uh, with a uh, quote from Spurgeon, who in 1854 gave a Christmas sermon on this verse here in Isaiah. He is an amazing man. 150 some odd years ago, and this is an incredible, incredible sermon. I encourage you If you haven't ever looked up Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, then please do so. I want to share what he wrote here about Emmanuel. Emmanuel, it is wisdom's mystery. Sages look into it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wing of science cannot fly so high. And the piercing eye of the vulture of research, cannot see it. God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. God with us. Tis the sufferer's comfort. Tis the balm of his woe. Tis, Tis the alleviation of his misery. Tis the sleep which God gives to his beloved. Tis their rest after exertion and toil. Till tis eternity's sonnet, tis, tis heaven's hallelujah, tis the shout of the glorified, tis the song of the redeemed, tis the chorus of the angels, tis the everlasting oratory of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. God bless you all. Have a Merry Christmas.